Radio. Reclaiming Wisdom by Paul Morrissey at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Well, thanks very much, um, David, and uh, it is a great pleasure to be here. It's my first time at the, uh, at, I think it's the third now, David, the third colloquium. Yes, it's great to be here, and hopefully uh, this will be the first of uh, many uh, that I can come to. Now, I prepared this paper, and, um, and uh, obviously you, you can read the program and, and see what it's about, but I've, just in hearing the other papers and getting a feel for the colloquium, I'm just changing somewhat what I was going to speak about. <laughs> Somewhat, but I, I will be also looking at uh, St Thomas Aquinas and wisdom. But I, I did want to preface some of what I wanted to say in in, in light of, of what we've been uh, already hearing, particularly this morning. The other thing, um, just by way, uh, I know it's it's always a bit hard after lunch. It's sort of a truism, isn't it? These sort of things. You, after lunch is, is is difficult. It's even harder, I think, uh, for Gary, who's after afternoon tea uh, <laughs> this afternoon. But as I tell my students, look, I don't mind if, you, if you're not paying attention, but at least pretend you're paying attention, which usually means, you know, sort of eyes open, uh, not necessarily on your, on, your, on your phone, and so on. So that's all I ask, pretend. I was very struck with uh, this morning's paper from uh, from Philippa and and her discussion about um, you know should we sort of blow blow the system up? Well, not quite. No, you didn't quite say that, but uh, almost said that. And um, yeah, recently I read it, and, and again I've, I've given two talks on education in general the last uh, week, so I've got a few things around in my mind which sort of connected with both Philippa's and Stephen's papers, particularly this morning. So I just wanted to mention a couple of things about that. You know, when we talk about a liberal education, there's two aspects of, of liberal, I think. And uh, the first is, is the negative aspect of liberal, and that is that to be liberated from something. So an educa- a liberal education will liberate you from something. Well, what is that from, you know? And, you know, most basically that, that's ignorance. So we want to be liberated from ignorance. And we want to be liberated in order that we, we have the, the tools in which to, to think and so on. So that's why, you know, we have schools, we have an education system so that young people can think and so on. So we need to be liberated from. And, and part of that is also, you know, resources and, and schools and, and so on. We need those things in order to help students to be liberated from. But there's a second part, and that's to be liberated for something. Um, it's, it's all very well to be liberated from, but if you're not liberated for something, um, and again, this, this coincides with, obviously, freedom as well. Freedom has that two sides. If, you, know, you, you need to be free from, but it's a freedom for. And so, in this paper... Stephen touched on this uh, this morning, that, that we don't hear a lot about the for education. What is it for? And I think this is a real, a real problem. Philippa's paper this morning was talking about a lot of things, but one of them, I think, was about this, to be liberated from state control. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting notion. I read recently... 
I think an important article by the American Catholic philosopher Russell Hittiger in the, in the journal First Things. And he, he was looking at uh, Pope Leo XIII's social teaching. And the, and the article was about, and it's called, The Three Necessary Societies. And Pope Leo XIII and the, and the birth of modern Catholic social teaching was the result of the birth of the modern nation-state through the, particularly the French Revolution, this rise of modern nation-states that were an end unto themselves, that were divorced from other elements of society, that we are the, this is a state and, you know, we need to, to create citizens for the state. And so Leo, in his wisdom, knew that this was a, a new age for the church and we needed a new way of thinking about this society. And so his theory revolved around there being three necessary societies. Before the revolution, in a sense, there was one. It was Christendom. But now there was a need for three societies, and they needed to be together. And he spoke about these necessary societies as marriage and the family as one, the church as two, and the third being the state or, or the political realm. And the three each had their own, in a sense, autonomy, but needed to be working together. And in the article, he points out that one of the main areas in which the state has come to dominate in this, in this, these new, in this new society is education. So prior to the revolution, education was basically in the sphere of the, of the family and of the church in many respects. The state wasn't so much involved. But gradually, since the rise of the, of the modern nation-state, certainly in the West, education has become more and more the purview of the state. And I think, and I agree with Philippa, that that's, that is a problem. That is a problem. And one way I think that um, you know, education, both you know, in terms of primary, secondary, and then higher education, can be reformed and can be improved is, as Philippa mentioned this morning, a, an increase in, in private education, local initiatives in education, where the state is not so much involved. But I was, uh, I was speaking about this the other day and I thought it worth mentioning in light of Philippa's talk this morning. The other thing I wanted to mention, and this, this um, coincides really with what this paper is going to be talking about, is this purpose of education and, and particularly wisdom. And I was very struck by uh, Stephen's presentation this morning. And um, I taught it, uh, at the University of Notre Dame for a number of years in Sydney. And, and there at that university, there is a, it's called a core curriculum. And so you, know, you have your sort of vocational degrees within various faculties. And then there's a core curriculum in which uh, students, every student at the university has to partake of. And when I was there, it was philosophy, ethics, and theology. And so I had the task, when the med school started at uh, Sydney, I, I was tasked with teaching the med students, post-grad med school, uh, theology, which was, <laughs> I drew the short straw, <laughs> teaching post-grad med students theology. And in the, in the group, I had about 40 students, and, um, and there were... I think from memory, about five would have been you know, Christian in terms of practising. So, so they were going to study theology for a term. Um, and all of them at the, at the beginning, they said, well, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> what is the point? 
And obviously, I didn't give them a, you know, a, a, you know your, your introduction to theology course as I would to a, a group of undergrad theology students, knowing they were postgrad med students. But all I did was try to speak about, and Stephen touched on this this morning, was, in a sense, to humanise their vocational degree in terms of understanding a bit of the Western tradition of what it means to be a human person and, and ideas of the dignity of the human person and what it means to be to care for someone, not just in terms of their physicality, but in terms of their soul and notions of soul and so on. So we would have big discussions on, on you know, the notion of free will, most of whom they didn't believe in free will and so on. But by the end of this term together, you know, we'd had some very rich and I think ennobling discussions about about the human person in light of what they were going to do. And, and, and I think that's a real area. And I, I think people aren't closed off to that idea in, um, in vocational educational training to broaden it. Not that they all have to do a, a BCL or a Bachelor of Philosophy, but, but to at least enter in there that, that we don't just have technicians, really good technicians, good surgeons. We want good surgeons in operate, but but have, a, in a sense, a more holistic understanding of things. So that, that was just a bit of an aside, but also in terms of what, um, what we've been talking a bit about this morning. But I'm going to be speaking particularly about St Thomas Aquinas. Now, I've... Um, St Thomas Aquinas I consider a bit of a friend, if you, if you, if you will. And I think that's part of what education should be about, is to be creating friendships with those who have come before us, but also with those who we are learning with. And I'm going to touch on that in, in this paper, that, that education is not just about knowledge, but it's about really forming habits of mind. And I consider St Thomas a friend. Um, he, he's, a, he's a saint and, a, and obviously a great scholar, philosopher, mystic, theologian, a poet, and so on. Um, but mostly because I've, you know, had, I did a, a PhD on, on Aquinas, not, not specifically on him, but on his, on his area of thinking and, and, uh, and those who followed in his footsteps. And one thing that really strikes me about Aquinas, apart from his tremendous um, knowledge and his tremendous capacity to synthesise knowledge, is his humility. And I think this is one of the great traits of an of a education in wisdom, an important virtue in the education in wisdom is humility. You know, a lot of undergraduates and, um, you know, they come, come to university and in a sense they think they, they, they know everything. And so what I, one of, one of the roles I see in, in, in education is to teach students how much they don't know. To, to make them aware of things they don't know and to give, try to cultivate a humility. And St Thomas Aquinas is one of the, I think, most humble of, of saints. You know, he wrote so much but nothing about himself. So we often compare the two great figures of Western Christian thought, Augustine and Aquinas. Augustine wrote a lot about himself, and it's not to say he wasn't humble, but he, he was, you know, Augustine, you know, wrote his own, wrote the first real autobiography in, in Western literature. So he wrote about himself, he was comfortable writing about himself. Aquinas wrote nothing of himself. 
And I remember I started, you know, studying Aquinas a bit more seriously, and um, and I was in in France, and I knew Aquinas was buried in France, but I couldn't find out where. I was thinking, gee, this is strange. He's what one of the great thinkers, greatest saints in 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 the Catholic Church, and we're and the Catholic Church is pretty good at honouring its saints, if nothing else. You know, we have <laughs> sometimes accused of saintology, and. I couldn't find where he was. And I, I found out that he was in, in Toulouse in southern France, not far from where I was. I thought, that's fantastic. I'll go and find, go on a little pilgrimage to see St Thomas. So I eventually found, I had to ask a lot of people, where, you know, where is he? <laughs> Can't find him. And um, so I eventually found, he's, he's in a museum. I thought, that's strange. Aquinas is in a museum. He's a Catholic saint the greatest intellect in the history of the Catholic Church. He's in a museum. He's not even in a church. Well, it's only half true. It is a church, uh, but uh, after the revolution, it was taken over by the state and uh, is no longer a church in, in the sense of it uh, being a museum. And I went in there. So I finally found I went in there and I said, well, where is he? <laughs> I can't see him anywhere. I was expecting some, you know, big signs. Here is St Thomas Aquinas, big lines of pilgrims and nothing. So there in the middle of this museum church is a, you know, there is an altar and there is a, a reliquary of his bones. There was no sign. There was no, nothing. And I, was, you know, I was really, I was so sad by this. I was thinking, you know, here's this great doctor of the church who wrote more eloquently and wrote more beautifully about the Blessed Sacrament than anyone in the history of the Church. And yet, the Blessed Sacrament wasn't even there <laughs> when he was lying. I think probably the only saint in Christendom where that's the case. And I was very sad. But then afterwards, on reflection, I thought, I think St Thomas would like this. You know, he's a hidden figure with a tremendous intellect. And he remains hidden, unglorified, even in death. So I've always had this great, great love for Aquinas, and, he, and he, I think he really does teach us something um, very profound about what it means to, to learn and to love learning. So I just want to talk about a couple of things in terms of this. First thing is, what does Aquinas have to say about being wise? And for Aquinas, there's three dimensions to being wise or wisdom. And the first he talks about is the philosophical or intellectual wisdom. And here he's basically following his great philosophical master, namely Aristotle. And he says that wisdom is basically the ability to arrange things and to judge rightly. The higher the thing to be arranged and judged, the greater the wisdom. He gives a, in the Summa, he just gives a simple example of a, a building, the, you know, build building something, a building. And he talks about how the architect who gives form to the building is wiser than the tradesman who actually constructs it because there's a higher ordering of things there. He also uses Aristotle's definition and quotes Aristotle's definition of wisdom as an intellectual virtue concerning knowledge that is least knowable to our intellects, but most knowable in its own nature. 
And here I think we get to the heart, of, again, of something perhaps Stephen was talking about this morning, that we, you know, you, you can think about love, but geez, love is it's hard to... For our intellects, it's, we can't grasp fully what that means, love. But it's most knowable in its own nature, in the, in the highest form of love. And here, obviously, he's using Aristotle's understanding of the ultimate reality, namely God, and for Aquinas, the blessed trinity. So that's the, the, the philosophical wisdom. For Aquinas, there's also a theological wisdom, which is wisdom that comes from sacra doctrina, or the sacred teaching passed on. And this is from revelation, divine revelation. So one can't just arrive at this through intellect alone. And the third, which I also want to speak about a bit today, is what he calls gift wisdom. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the first, sorry, the second and the third wisdoms, namely theological and gift wisdom, have a divine source, although each according to its own way. The first and the second, namely philosophical and theological, use human concepts and reason. But what I want to speak about more with Aquinas, and again I was asked or I gave the title about the integration of knowledge, I want to speak about Aquinas' teaching on co-natural knowledge or co-natural wisdom which is connected really to the third type of wisdom for Aquinas, namely gift. Co-natural knowledge. What does this mean? Well, Aquinas teaches that an important component of knowledge, any knowledge that we gain, is that which is gained by experience and sympathy. So in the practical realm, this is, this is obvious, so you, we may read or know how to change a tyre in theory, but we will know it in a far deeper and more meaningful way if we actually change a tyre. And I, I'm always struck when this particularly happens when we buy something from IKEA, and uh, you know you, you open the instruction manual, and I'm looking at it, thinking, my goodness, this. This makes absolutely no sense to me. And uh, I don't have a very logical mind, so for some people it's, it's easy. But I look at it, and then when you actually get in to do it, it it's like, oh, that does make sense now. But just on the, on the theory part of it, it doesn't make sense. But once you actually do it, and, and I think if anyone's tried to actually write something, write some instructions down, you know what to do, but you write instructions. So we, when we leave our children to someone to babysit and they don't know our children. My wife writes instructions for them. And it's terribly difficult because she knows what to do. But to write it down to someone who has no idea, it's very difficult. And I think this is what you know, Aquinas is talking about. So there's that theoretical knowledge, which we do know, need to know, but there's that knowledge gained through co-naturality, in other words, doing something in order to know it or experiencing something in order to know it, to have a certain sympathy for something or someone in order to know something or someone. And I think this is a very important aspect. It's sometimes lost in education itself. 
And for Aquinas, and those who follow in Aquinas, not for Aquinas, because obviously it predates the Enlightenment, but certainly after the Enlightenment, this understanding was somewhat lost. Um, the great uh, educationalist in, in, in the States, um, whose name I may John Senior, I think it's John Senior? Yeah. Um, he was onto something with this. He, you know, he, he felt that our, our students from the very earliest age need to experience things in order to know the world. They need to experience things. You know, how sad it was to hear... Uh, Kevin, I did hear this, Kevin, because I was in the next room. I wasn't... Uh, I didn't run out. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, your daughter, when teaching, uh, you know, year twos, that they, they come in and, and just start swiping. They don't... They've actually felt and looked at the, the picture book. So Aquinas was, if nothing else, a philosopher of being, of reality, of things. Things were important for Aquinas. And I think that's a really important aspect of education, to experience things, not just know them, but to experience them, is what we know. And for Aquinas, this is particularly true, the idea of co-natural knowledge in the area of virtue and the moral life. The life of virtue, Aquinas says, can be compared with the experience of an artist or a tradesman who through repeated experience and mistakes, and so again mistakes are important in learning, will come to know his or her trade in a deeper, more intuitive way, leading to a greater freedom, paradoxically. It is the same with virtue. When we repeatedly act in a just way, we learn what justice is. The universal concept that we may learn about of justice is related to the particular circumstances of moral action. And this applies to all the virtues. The 20th century uh, Thomist uh, ethicist, Survey Pinkers, writes about this really well. He says... In this work, namely the work of the moral life and growing in virtue, where we encounter reality, both interior and external, we develop a kind of knowledge that is proper to virtue. A knowledge attained through co-naturality. A rapid, sure, penetrating and intuitive ability to judge. We see things at a glance as skilled and experienced workers do. This kind of knowledge is accompanied by inspiration, which then favours invention and creativity in the moral life. So it's in knowing not just the, the techne, the, the words and the concepts of what it means to be good, but in living them, having a sympathy for them and living them, that we really grow in freedom and creativity and intuition, like any good artist would. So as by the habits of natural understanding and science, a man is rightly disposed... This is St Thomas, so I'm just quoting St Thomas here. As by the habits of natural understanding and science, a man is rightly disposed with regard to general truths. So in order that he be rightly disposed with regard to the particular <coughs> principles of action, namely their ends, he needs to be perfected by certain habits, whereby it becomes, as it were, co-natural to him to judge rightly about an end. The virtuous man judges rightly of the end of virtue because, as Aristotle says, as a man is, so does the end seem to him.
So what does this mean for a liberal education? And I gave a talk to some of our students at Campion last year. They were just about to embark on their uh, examinations and in the midst of doing assignments. And I addressed them about some of, um, well, what does it mean to, to study well? And, and I was trying to get them out of the, you know, I've got to get a good mark, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and, you know, the natural stress of the student, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I related to them a, a, a book, a great, great little book by a Dominican uh, priest, A.D. Sertillange, called The Intellectual Life. And in it, he really talks a lot about the certain habits one needs to learn well. And I think this is part of what a liberal education means, that it's, it's about a learning for life. It's about creating habits of learning, if, if, if you want. Um, and what are some of these habits? I think first and foremost, it's a cultivation of wonder and awe. And again, that's not necessarily something that can be taught, you know, like a, a science subject. But it's something I think that, it, that all educators should, should try to foster, whatever one is teaching. The wonder and awe of what they are looking at. Silence. The importance of silence as a habit of mind in education, I think, is really crucial. And increasingly so today, where it's so difficult for students to be or not be distracted. And I think, um, you know, I'm not going to, into this here, but the whole question of technology in education is a, is a massive one, I think. I've already spoken about humility as important. And in terms of St Thomas's teaching on co-naturality, a sympathy for what one is studying is really important. John Henry Newman um, wrote about habits of learning also in his great discourse on the idea of a university. He writes, The student apprehends the great outlines of knowledge, the principle on which it rests, the scale of its parts, its lights and its shades, its great points and its little points, as he otherwise cannot apprehend them. Hence it is that his education is called liberal. Newman goes on, A habit of mind is formed which lasts through life, of which the attributes of freedom, equitableness, calmness, moderation and wisdom, or what in a former discourse I have ventured to call a philosophical habit of mind. The other thing I think, apart from co-naturality and this sympathy, or understanding of sympathy, um, in Aquinas' writing that, that is connected to wisdom is the synthesis of knowledge or the integrative nature of learning. Now Aquinas was trained, his formal quali qualification was a master of the sacred page, basically what we'd call today a scripture scholar. And yet if you read any textbook on Aquinas, you read that, well, he was probably the greatest philosopher of the Middle Ages. He's the one who, in a sense, brought Aristotle um, to the West and integrated him into, into Christian thinking. But he was also 
someone who could synthesise and wanted to synthesise the whole of truth, particularly in the higher realm of thinking of philosophy and theology. He thought that's possible and a noble thing to do. And it's hard to imagine someone having that sort of audacity today. So in my own discipline of theology, you've got so many branches of theology that very rarely speak to each other. In scripture, morals, dogmatics, and so on and so forth. For Aquinas, in the medieval mind, that was nonsensical. That all feed into each other. It's not to say we don't need speciality and so on, but, but I think in many aspects in higher education and in, in within individual disciplines, there's so much specialisation that there's not a lot of talking together and integration. And Aquinas was certainly someone, and he, he wasn't teaching about that, that was just who he was and what the university sort of enabled in those days. But I think it's something from him that we can still learn from. And for me particularly, that's the case in philosophy and theology. The other thing I wanted to share about in terms of Aquinas' understanding of, of knowing is the connection, and it's somewhat connected to co-naturality, is the connection between knowledge and love. And someone who wrote quite profoundly about that in recent times, and he did borrow a little bit from Aquinas in this, was um, Joseph Ratzinger, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. He wrote that knowledge depends on a certain similarity between the knower and the known. And in personal knowledge, this is obvious. We cannot know someone without some empathy so that we can enter into the person or intellectual reality concerned. So we, we need to know someone in order to that we can, in a sense, love them. And Ratzinger goes on and, and speaks about, in academia, how this is so true, that in order to be a philosopher or do philosophy, we need to philosophize and we need to enter into, in a sense, a not a leap of faith, but a, a trusting relationship with the discipline itself and with those who have gone before. And Ratzinger as a theologian, was specifically thinking about theology itself. And in the essay that I'm citing here, particularly about the study of Christ or Christology, he says a lot of Christology today, and he's writing at this stage in the 1980s, makes the mistake of trying to make the study of Christ a purely rationalistic undertaking. And you saw this with sort of a, a common catchphrase of the time, the Christ of history which was the idea that we could study Christ as if we'd study you know, any person of ancient history. But in theology, that, and that, that could be done outside of theology, but in theology that was a nonsense, according to Ratzinger. In order to study Christ, we need to enter into the mind of Christ as a theologian, to participate in the mind of Christ, and we can only do this in prayer. And so he's basically... Uh, teaching on this was that Christology is born of prayer or not of all. And I think there's a certain truth to that in all our learning. There's a certain sense of trust one needs in an authority in order to fully enter into and learn and understand and grow in wisdom, whatever the discipline is. I mean, it, it has a deeper impact, obviously, in theology. 
But I think it's true in any area of, um, of learning. So I'm going to draw to a close, but I thought I'd finish with, um, as I said, Aquinas has, has become a good friend of, of mine, I think. I've, I've visited his little uh, humble home now, I think on five occasions, to pray for inspiration and, uh, and ask his intercession. But there's a, there's a classic um, anecdote of his life, and I think it sort of sums him up quite well, and sums up the era quite well. It's the encounter that Chesterton uh, writes about really well in his uh, little biography of uh, Aquinas. And it's the encounter between Aquinas and King Louis IX of France, Saint Louis, the saintly king. And Saint Louis, in fact, or Aquinas, somehow got invited to dinner with the king, and he wasn't that keen to go, being the, uh, and he was teaching at the University of Paris, and he was asked to go along, and his Dominican superiors obviously allowed him to go. And on his way there, he was with a, with a, a Dominican uh, frere, or friar, and he, he was on his way, and the, and the friar said, oh, isn't this great, you know, the palace, the court, isn't this, wouldn't it be great to own all this? And Aquinas was, was said to say, well, I prefer uh, Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew's Gospel, which I can't get my hands on. I prefer that to Northern Kingdom of France. Which goes to some way to thinking about you know, Aquinas' priorities. But anyway, at this dinner, you know, the whole court was present and there was a lot of frivolity. And, and here was this friar at the end, quite a, a large man, uh, St Thomas was known to be, but very quiet, unassuming. And here he was at this dinner table and, and the, uh, the king, St Louis, was holding court and, and speaking about various things and he got onto the topic of clothing. And he said, and this, anyway, Chesterton quotes him as saying is this, it's, uh, vanity should be awarded. Oh, sorry, awarded? No, that's not right. Vanity should be avoided. <laughs> I think I've written awarded here. Vanity should be avoided, but every rank should dress well in the manner of his rank, so that his wife may the more easily love him. So here's St. Louis. He says this little statement. And then at the end of the table, the other end of the table, you have this Dominican friar, and he slams down his fists, the plate goes everywhere, and he bellows out, and that will settle the manichees. And I mean, everyone sort of, you know, <laughs> what's he talking about? And they knew what he was talking about because this was the new heresy that the Dominicans were formed to combat in southern France, a new form of manichaeism that, that detested the body and, um, and um, was very ascetical and saw that the material world was evil a new form of Manichaeism, the Elmagentians, or the Cathars, as they're called. And Aquinas was, spent a lot of his time sort of trying to fight this heresy. And so he's yelled this out, and St. Louis says, you know, they're all waiting for his response, thinking, my goodness, the king's not going to be too happy with this. And he sent two of his uh, sort of secretaries around with some slate, said, take some slate and go and speak to that man and write down his argument, because he knows what he's talking about. Because St Louis knew that in this little quip he said about the importance of dress and the importance of a wife's love, 
was really at heart an argument against this Albigensian heresy. And you see that Aquinas, in his knowledge of such a variety of things, his knowledge of, of life and his knowledge of truth, wasted none of his energy in trying to arrive at that. He's called the common doctor of the church or the angelic doctor. And I think he was supremely wise. There is, unfortunately, a common misconception of him, that he was constantly away from reality and in the abstract world. A little bit like what Carl was saying yesterday, I think, about the, uh, the absent-minded professor. Um, his mind was present elsewhere. And I think for Aquinas that was somewhat true. His writings and his thinking sometimes are said are not for the contemporary world or the contemporary church. And yet Aquinas was the supreme philosopher of the Middle Ages. His main discipline, that being said, was theology. He wrote numerous magnificent commentaries on sacred scripture, particularly his commentary on the Gospel of St John. And in fact, he says of St John's Gospel that it's the gospel in which Christ's love is most fully revealed. Why? Because John was the beloved disciple with his head on the heart of Christ. Therefore, his, his gospel, and this is a quote from Aquinas, rose to such sapiential heights because of his friendship with Christ, his unique friendship. They're Aquinas' words. And as I said, he's buried in a church that is now a museum with no fanfare. At the end of his life, for the last few months of his life, he was reduced to silence. His magnum opus was incomplete. He couldn't complete it because he was given an ecstatic vision of all that he'd studied. And he was said to say that everything he has written is all but straw after what I have seen. And he died humbly on his way to the Council of Lyon, which was called to try to reunite the East and Western churches. He was a poet composing some of the most beautiful words in honour of the Lord hidden in the Blessed Sacrament. He should be, or so states one of his most important followers in the 20th century, Joseph Piper, I think known by his silence. And yet, I think he has so much to say to us. Even though he spent his life, and literally at the end of his life, being struck dumb with the wonder of things, the wonder of being itself. Thanks. That was Paul Morrissey with Reclaiming Wisdom. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme, Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion of Education as the Basis for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.